Don't tell me words don't matter. Because our words have creative power. On Open to Interpretation, host Amy Young is joined by PLU faculty and educators from different academic disciplines to consider a single word commonly used in the news, on social media, and on college campuses. It ain't the word! It's the context in which the word is said. Through debate and dialogue, Open to Interpretation reminds us that rarely, if ever, can a word's meaning be reduced to a single understanding. At last, we're going to have a dialogue about the power of words. And now, here's Dr. Amy Young. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Open to Interpretation. I'm Amy Young, Associate Professor of Communication. And I have with me today, Ami Shaw, Assistant Professor of Global Studies and Anthropology, and Katie Hay, Associate Professor of Physics. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So we always start this gig with a few warm-up questions to get juices flowing. And I want to alert our audience that both of my guests have coughs. So in case that starts to become a thing, just go with it. Favorite place to get lunch within five minutes of campus? Ami? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> within five minutes of campus, meaning my office, um, I think the usual place I go is U-House. Okay. Cheap. Nice people. I can't beat that. Nope. That's right. Katie, what about you? I really like the Ferrellis, the pizza place. Okay. There. When I've got time to walk away from the office, then that's where I go. It is always nice to be able to actually walk. There's a, a uh, burrito joint that's fairly close to here. It might not quite be five minutes, but that's mine. Nice. And I can't even remember what it's called, but burrito ask. joint. I'll look it up. Since I know that we all have younger kids... What is your favorite children's book, Katie? Oh, this is great. I am really into this book called Rosie Revere, Engineer. And it kind of describes like a young girl um, discovering that she has engineering tendencies and she likes to build things. But she goes through what many young girls do and um, has a lack of confidence in her science abilities, doesn't like to see herself fail and... And it's kind of connected to um, the Rosie figure from the from the uh, World War II era. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a great little fiction book. Cool. So my child's younger; she's nine months. Um, so we're not necessarily doing sophisticated narratives yet. Um, but one of our favorites right now is called "Giraffes Can't Dance." Oh, um, that's good. With, <laughs> with this poor giraffe, Gerald, who is. Very sweet and very tall, but really clumsy, um, and has to come to enjoy how he moves to the music of the moon. So, but a slight aside as an Africanist, there's a little point where it says every year in Africa they hold the jungle dance, but all these safari animals come. So I always struggle through that page, uh-huh. but it's um it's super super cute, and she loves it so. I, I used to, when my kids were that little, I used to li- literally have memorized, like, every single Boynton book, like, Mooba, La La La, and Barnyard Dance and yeah, everything. Sure. And yeah. I think a lot of them are stuck in a synapse somewhere, so yeah. if, Gerald if pressed, was a tall giraffe. His neck was long and thin. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to do it. I used to love um, Mo Willems' books uh, with, my, with my kids were um, couldn't read to themselves. Uh, and he used to write for Sesame Street. Oh, nice. And... He has this entire series called Nuffle Bunny about this girl, Trixie, and her 
bunny stuffed animal and the third Nuffle Bunny is like watching the third Toy Story movie like I bawled no. hysterically <laughs> in the public library reading this to my child who's just looking at me like are you okay? <laughs> Can I turn the page? Some of them are very touching. Can you That's help right. it? I, mean, I know. <laughs> Mom, you're embarrassing me. This is it's a it's a book about a bunny, dude. <clears throat> okay, so movie you've seen the most times. Oh Ami? gosh. I have a nine month old. Um, I don't know the last time I saw a movie. Um, maybe maybe Love Actually. Oh yeah. That's like a, at that Christmas? seems to be big around the holidays, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Or probably, if not that, maybe E.T. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. I love E.T. I still haven't shown that one to my kids. That's another one I will ball through. So. <laughs> um, gosh, I don't like to watch movies uh, too many times because there's not enough time to watch one. But I think one I've watched many times in my youth is the movie Clue. Oh, Do you I remember love that, that one? Movie. Oh, so funny. It is hilarious. Such a great, great cast of characters and just just silly all around. Yeah. I think probably the one I have a series of movies that if they come on TV, I will watch them. <laughs> and Caddyshack is probably at the top of mm-hmm. that list. So I, I don't know how many times I've seen it at this point. It's a little awkward. Okay, so on Open to Interpretation, what we try to do is take a word that is common in popular or mediated discourse or on campus, but a word that has variable connotations, and we try to talk about what those meanings are, and to some degree that's from a disciplinary perspective, and to some degree that's just experience. So today we're going to talk about the word stress. Uh, so feel free to answer this however feels most comfortable. We'll start with a question about how you define stress, maybe in your life or in your discipline. What does stress mean to you? Katie? Well, for a physicist, stress means um, what a material experiences inside when it's exposed to external pressure. And the concept of stress is tied closely to the concept of pressure and strain. Those words often happen together in physics. And I would note that in common language, stress, strain, and pressure generally are interchangeable. But to a physicist, they mean very different measurable quantities. Um, So a material might experience external pressure, and then um, you would measure the strain on the material, i.e. the bending or compression or twisting or stretching, and you would infer the stress inside the object. So your goal with things like stress testing would be to reduce any one component of the material or one particle of the material experiencing too much stress in a certain direction because that would uh, have it reach a a breaking point. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) All right. You know, I work in international development and humanitarianism, and we use the word stress a lot, but without any precision at all. It can be stand-in for a variety of different things. And when I was thinking about this, I think one of the ways we use it is to demonstrate an increase in vulnerability for Mm. populations, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a population that is going to be receiving development aid or is in the midst of a crisis may experience an increase in stress with an increase in vulnerability, right? Like food prices change dramatically or something like that. I think also, though, that we kind of forget that stress can also come about through change, right? Like you might have a a project that's asking you to suddenly, I don't know, 
change and your occupation or change the household distribution of food or even send your kids to school that creates different types of new stress for Absolutely. community too. Yeah. How is um, physical stress or biological stress, the kind of stress maybe more along the lines of what Katie was talking about, similar or different to, do you think, something like emotional stress? So for instance, we're heading into exam week here uh, next week. And of course, everyone is perhaps a little bit panicky and starting to feel the stress of the semester. Uh, How is that, do you think, similar or different to something like the sort of stress that you're talking about, where it's an external pressure and some kind of internal movement? If you'll allow me a stretch of a metaphor here. (laughs) Sure. No pun intended. Um, I think you you could maybe learn something about like a continuum, a group of people experiencing stress, maybe from physics and calculus, because um, what calculus does is it gives us the ability to um, describe each particle in a material and what each individual particle is feeling, the force per area. And what engineers and architects have been have gotten good at is, relieving the stress on individual parts, individual components of a bridge or a cathedral or um, a cell phone (laughs) by distributing that out with design, for example, with arches or flying buttresses or cables. I was just driving across the Tacoma Narrows Bridge this morning, thinking about how that stress is distributed more evenly throughout the group so that not one single individual particle was um, reaching a breaking point or experiencing too much strain. And so... (laughs) having that loose metaphor might get us back to um, if we were as skilled as architects at distributing stress throughout a continuum or a group or a society, right. if you will, then maybe we would reduce the stress on single vulnerable groups or people. <laughs> Is that too? <laughs> no, that's great. And that's actually a really, really interesting point. I'm thinking especially about your point about design and designing any kind of system to reduce stress on one part by kind of offloading it onto other things. And I, I think about that in the way that I c- construct a syllabus or do something, right, so that sure. not everything is due on top of one another at mm-hmm. the same time as when perhaps I have other deadlines. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that, Ami? Well, I mean, I was thinking about syllabi at the same time and how right. I've been trying to distribute minds. right <laughs> not just my own workload but student workload yeah. um, and I don't know if that's helped <laughs> to reduce stress or not but I mean you were asking about the difference between emotional mm-hmm. and physical I think one thing that's really clear right now is that emotional has psychosomatic right implications at least at yeah. least but I wonder if there's also something about the um the type of risk involved or, you know, what the stakes are and the differences between emotional and physical stress, right? Like between like a kind of mental health response or even a, a self-care type of response right. uh, versus a, a physical stress that could be a life or death matter as well. I'm And I'm just brainstorming here, but I wonder if that's part of the difference is the risks involved or the implications of the stress. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we think about stress, and we've talked about this a little bit, being applied to a social system or a construct like government or, Mm. I don't know, an election. Um, (laughs) What could you be talking about? I know. Well, (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not I'm I'm leading without trying to be totally leading. I'm thinking in part about the kind of social thresholds that when you cross them lead people to move in some way, to riot or to protest or to act um, or to someone being overthrown or to whatever kind of activism, you know, we might be thinking about in that kind of a system. Do you think that is a result of stress? What are sort of the factors that precipitate that, if that's true? Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, in my work in teaching around issues of like urban violence, which really look at the at different forms of resistance, right. I guess. I mean, there's everything from what's been called everyday forms of resistance, where you just kind of quietly opt out or quietly keep putting your sign somewhere, et cetera, that are often kind of looked over as really minor things, but are actually sometimes very strong moments of of response because they're usually done by the people who have the most to lose, right? But and I think, consistently in many cases. Yeah, right? Um, but I think that I kind of tend to see, again, that increased vulnerability is helping to define the sliding scale, I think, from resistance to protest to riot in some ways. And I think it's really easy to label protest and riot as something um, that's negative, that you know, people are lashing out or is very destructive. And of course, there are riots that are destructive. But I think we also need to remember that these are moments of stress that can also be productive, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, right. Yeah. A protest can be a way to relieve the stress. on, mm-hmm. But can also then try to remove the causes of those stresses yeah, as right. well. They make a voice heard. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think sometimes, too, we think about stress only in a in a negative sense or something to be avoided but there are good there can be good outcomes of stress and mm-hmm. there can be good good stresses on the body like you have a sure. new job and it's mm-hmm. great and you know whatever invigorating it's invigorating and, and yeah. but it's still your body still reads that in some way as it's a change stress mm-hmm. as a change yeah in yeah. some in some way of vulnerability yeah yeah I think, I mean, one of the things that I feel just within the literature is that we have a really um, lack of clarification between protest and riot and Hmm. why, right? And I mean, in popular language, it's even worse, right? Anything can almost be a riot. And I think we kind of maybe even in popular usage need better language to define the difference between sports fans rioting after a loss versus um, a a protest that has some violent components in response to police shootings. Right. 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 Lighting a car on fire after your team wins is perhaps... Different than lighting a police car on fire after a police shooting. Yeah, absolutely. True. We're quick to label um, the event as a protest or a riot. Mm Mm-hmm. I think depending on what kind of frame you're looking through. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I did a talk for uh, the NAACP and the American Association of University Women a couple of weeks ago that was on civility. They asked me to come in and speak on civility, which Mm. is a topic everyone is suddenly (laughs) really interested in. And we we actually did a podcast on civility, too. But I, I chose to take it as a moment to talk about productiveness of incivility and the fact that, you know, we sometimes civility, like our use of 
calling a protest or any form of resistance a riot as if it's a violent act, Mm -hmm. um, that that, in fact, is kind of a policing Mm -hmm. rhetoric, right? Because then people don't want to be involved in something that's violent, right? right? Or lawless or somehow degrading to society when, in fact, those things can be the other way, Mm -hmm. can do the opposite. Interesting. I'm just... uh thinking about this as uh, relating back to physics and thinking, I wonder if at some point um, a certain amount of stress is healthy for an object, for example, a bridge under tension, um, having all the pieces be under tension enough that um, it, it can withstand a wind going through it um, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So, and, it, and now that you say that, I'm wondering if I could try to extend the metaphor <laughs> and think about you know, in a democratic society, the stress of being confronted with beliefs you don't necessarily agree with might actually be a productive exercise, right? Mm-hmm. The willingness to stop, listen, confront, digest, and maybe even reform and start anew, right? Like that's it's very dialectical all of a sudden, but yeah. right, that could be definitely part uh, of the process, especially at this divisive point in American politics, yeah. of moving forward, yeah, mm-hmm. and that happens on an individual level. Just um, asking, asking yourself, have I heard something that disagrees with something I already believe in, and saying to yourself, I need to confront that, right? Being um, easier or having better coping mechanisms for something like cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's easy to hear something that you already agree with, but for something that causes you a little bit of stress. Um, Maybe that's your, your moment to step back and say, does this, does this change something that I believe? Yeah. yeah. When we think about, let's say, emotional stress, because I think that one is a little maybe easier to think about in this context, although... Um, Katie, feel free to go in a different <laughs> direction. Uh, we talk a lot or we often hear about the benefits of being able to manage our stress more effectively or understand what causes us stress. And uh, those kinds of strategies and awareness that can lead to alleviating stress. Do you feel like that's applicable to other types of stress? I mean, is stress really something that's about, in some ways, understanding or management strategy? So personally, um, I'll start there. (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) the management strategy really annoys me because, right, like just take some time and have, you know, get some more sleep or do some self-care, go take yoga and work-life balance. This work-life balance, (laughs) which is like when, how, why, I mean, there. There's. Um, it's almost an annoying language in and of itself to manage. Stress. Right. That's almost in some ways. I mean, in some ways, parts of it, yes, are necessary, but in some ways, parts of it are unrealistic mm-hmm. um, and, and sometimes requires outsourcing in ways that require money and time and all of that to figure it out as well. Right. right? Um, because to go take yoga or to go do whatever, that means you need to have your child somewhere. And, you're not yeah. working. And those right. are also options that, you know, I might have that people who are working three minimum wage jobs with both parents with mm-hmm. four kids or one kid or whatever are just not going to have right. those options. Right. So what does it mean to manage stress? And I think, um, you know, we could think about 
also, what are the structural causes of that emotional stress? Mm-hmm. And I think part of what makes me angry about the language is it's about the individual being able to care for themselves in this hyper-individualized society without thinking about how do we care for each other? And if we have a structural situation in which people are working three minimum wage jobs for, you know, 18 hours a day and still aren't able to make ends meet or feel pressured to do that, what what does that say about us? And I think right now we're we're unwilling to take on that stress of self-reflection and more willing to be like, you take care of yourself. Right? Good luck like, to you. Good luck. Here's some yoga. Take a hot bath. Right. And that's that can be our answer to everything. So we're willing to deal with stress often on an individual level without thinking about the larger social structural issues. I had. There's so many obligations. Do you think that um, that stress has gone up in the last a uh, couple generations? Is that just me saying, poor me? <laughs> or did my parents feel the same way? You know, I don't know. I always read these things, and this is usually related to, I have I have two kids who are 10 and 7, and this is usually related to parenting stress. Mm. But I there are a lot of blogs, posts out there about how much easier it was to raise kids in the 70s and 80s, or how much easier it was to raise kids in the 50s and 60s, or, you know, who, who knows, right? Yeah, and I wonder if every generation is. just thinks it's easier right. the generation before, right? but it's not. There, I think the stress changes. To mm-hmm. me, that just seems more like a more reasonable interpretation. Like, I'm stressed out about how much time my kids sit in front of screens mm-hmm. and electronic devices and whether they're going to have, you know, their brain leaking out or something <laughs> because they watch too much. Yeah. I sometimes wonder that, you know, with that, if like the overload of access to information can also create a new type of stress that oh, previous generations didn't have. For and sure. Certainly the, um, the choices, like having too many choices can cause stress. Right. And that's something that our like independent American culture gives us lots and lots of choices. <laughs> lots and lots of choices, or at least the illusion of lots of choices in some right. cases. <laughs> I want to go back for a second to something that Ami said just a few minutes ago, uh, which is that, you know, these these stress management techniques and the sort of language of stress management, I wonder if that is in and of itself a kind of privilege mm. to be able to manage stress. Because I'm thinking about your example of someone who works three jobs, when is the opportunity? What is Mm -hmm. the opportunity? There likely is no really Mm -hmm. concentrated opportunity to manage stress effectively. Right. I think it is. And I think it becomes even more so when we take it back to my work in like the developing world, right? Um, So, you know, I one of the groups of people I've worked with are artisanal miners. Mm-hmm. So they kind of mine, um, you know, precious stones is what they're called. So okay. they're not, they're not rubies, but they're not just the rock in your backyard, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so somewhere in between. <laughs> somewhere in between. They're used in jewelry a lot. They're very pretty. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's their livelihood. So what happens if you shift to a new mine and there's nothing there and that you've spent three months there and you're leaving with nothing, right? Or what happens to the farmer whose crops are suddenly devastated by the farmer next door who's using seeds provided by somewhere else or whatever, right? right? right. So when you take that framework and shift it to a global scale, I think it's a huge, huge privilege. Um, There's not a 
question of managing stress. There's a question of managing what you do now that that stress has appeared, right? Like, how do you get up and move on with the next day? Mm. Yeah. Perhaps it all comes down to finances somehow. Everyone's motivated by the obligations that need to be um, taken care of to to just keep living life and keep having the money to um, feed your family. Um, I wonder what what can be done to relieve that mm-hmm. stress, um, the financial stress that kind of is the root of many of those problems. Yeah. And I think we could complicate that, that it's not just, you know, our daily lives are not just about finances and economy, but all sorts of obligations that also have nothing to do with that, but maybe take time or other types of That resources. are a kind of capital expenditure, yeah, even if it's right? an emotional expenditure or a time expenditure. Mm-hmm. Right. Social obligations, obligations to family members, obligations to caretake, which I think is hugely yeah. under-discussed, right? Um, so how all of those fit into it, it's not just the finances. It's all the competing, mm-hmm. you know, types of other types of labor, mm-hmm. including emotional labor, I think. Yeah. I recently heard the word kin-keeping, that it's often kin-keeping. someone's um, obligation in the family, sometimes uh, the mother in a family who is – in charge of the kin keeping, and that can cause extra mm-hmm. stress. And that's like um, making sure that the nephew got a birthday card, or mm-hmm. making sure that you got the right Christmas present for uh, the in-laws, or, or something. And it may, often, maybe it's not the mother, but somebody has to do the kin keeping to make sure that you still have friends. <laughs> and yeah. that can cause stress. <laughs> no, yeah. I think that's I think that's often a pretty gendered thing. <laughs> I remember yes. I had a girlfriend who got married in the early 30s, something like that, and her aunt said to her, "Don't do anything in the first year of marriage you don't want to be doing." the 30th. (laughs) And I thought, that's brilliant because, right, if you start doing all the kin keeping, (laughs) then the stress is constantly on you. Even if nobody actually expects you to do these things, you feel personally obligated and that causes you stress. And it might not even be obligated within the relationship of the marriage, but within the relationship of the rest of your kin. Now it is, because now you started this thing about sending your nephew the birthday card. (laughs) Addressing the Christmas cards, even, or the birthday invitations. That's right. (laughs) That's right. My poor husband got got the laundry, and and I just let him do it because he keeps doing it. Good. That's right. He did that in the first year, and so that's his fault. (laughs) It's his fault. That's right. right. (laughs) Um, I think that's an interesting, though, the sort of leveling up between individual and community kinds of both stress and also stress relief or caregiving Mm -hmm. or other kinds of things that we might, words that we might use, that's caregiving is probably not a great word, but words that we might use to describe how to alleviate stress in productive ways across larger populations (laughs) than single individuals. Because I think you're right, all of these techniques and even you know, ones that we have available on campus are always mm-hmm. about a class that you can that you can go to one person, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, a benefit that we might have have mm-hmm. for you know massage or whatever. But again, it's one person and that one person's resources, and not mm-hmm. necessarily a larger body of people. Yeah, the mm-hmm. whole continuum. So, what are those larger structures that the larger structures that can be built over an entire continuum to um, distribute the stress more evenly, I guess. I think that's a really good question. I think mm-hmm. especially in light of the CBO scoring on the health care bill that's mm. just been mm-hmm. proposed, if 
26 million people. 24, Mm -hmm. I think. CBO says 24. White House's internal numbers were actually worse than that. Oh, interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. To, to have that many people once again off of mm-hmm. healthcare rosters, that doesn't seem to me to be a way to alleviate stress across right. large segments of people. Right. And those are large scale numbers that don't take into account really special populations. That's who right. Might have really specific Even more needs. needs. Right. But so there's that. There's like, how do we address or treat stress structurally? There's also how do we prevent it? Right. Right. And I mean, part of that is obviously a political project in some ways, but it's also a social project, right? Of We're course. invested in a society where, you know, it's really cool to be and important to work 15 hours a day and mm-hmm. be super busy and Absolutely. run around like you're on Wall Street, et cetera. And how can, why do we valorize that, right? Like that's another know the massive question. And then we then valorize leisure as something that happens during spring break or, right, like that's compartmentalized as well. Um, and that people feel often guilty about having right. leisure. Yeah. Like yeah. to take a week off, a lot of people can't do not know what to do with themselves. Right. And that also kind or of are made misses, to feel bad about it. Right. Yeah. So you're stressed about vacation. <laughs> right. And it misses the day-to-day, like, rhythms and flows of life, too. Like why – why do we watch movies like, well, see, there's a movie I've seen. Ta-da! Uh-huh. Wolf, of Wa- Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And see, like, these people working crazy hours and then, you know, extreme partying. And, like, but those crazy hours of working, does that need to exist across one person? What happens if we start to hire more people? And what mm-hmm. does that do also then to unemployment rates and all of those other stresses, right? right? Yeah. And spread that out. Well, and I wonder about that in terms of just... Even our jobs, which some people look at and think, well, you only teach X number of hours a day. Or isn't it nice to have summers off? I get that one a lot. Oh, gosh. And I think. <laughs> I do research. Uh, I know. Yes, I always literally. Like, right. No. no, that's that's all I do is is read other people's stuff and start writing things. And <laughs> right. um, my hobby is work after my the kids hobby go to is bed. work. And that's really sad. <laughs> but I think about this because you can take your work anywhere mm-hmm. and then. You know, and for us, that becomes that isn't always true. I mean, some people need a lab setting, or some people need to be mm-hmm. in a particular location, or something. If you're doing development work or that kind of mm-hmm. thing, for me, I'm a rhetorician. Mm-hmm. I I just need a laptop, yeah, and mm-hmm. Wi-Fi, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> I can for, be yeah. anywhere, yeah. and so I can be up all hours doing it. And, and, for a teacher, and that stress follows me. Yeah, and for a teacher, you can always make your lecture better. You can always make your mm-hmm. worksheets better. Sure, of better. course. You can, there's always incremental, yes. like, oh, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, I got I got an idea. That's right. <laughs> right. I got to email that guy about that thing. <laughs> right. And then, again, a huge amount of guilt for the days that in the summer or whenever when we're vacationing or seeing family or something, we're like, oh, I could have just finish that last page of that article, right? There's always the guilt right. that follows us. Right, because you could have, because you've got your laptop, so it's not like, you know, but yeah. then you're just dra- you're draining yourself, too. So how much of this is our own doing to ourselves, you know? Like, I as maybe the word perfectionist isn't the right thing here, but, like, we're all in a profession where, like, we really want to be our best selves and we want to present that to the students and be good role models. Um, so sometimes I feel like it's really difficult to write a mediocre lecture, but maybe that's the right thing to do sometimes if I need my own healing time. Right. Yeah. Or to create some kind of activity that we're going to do in class because I just did not have time to, right. to create a lecture <laughs> that is meaningful, even mediocre. 
<laughs> so how many of our students are listening right now? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not that many. No, but I think <laughs> they haven't made it this far in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> be so like they were, to them? Maybe no, not. You're, you're safely buried at minute 30 or whatever. <laughs> Wait, I mean, well, I think that comes back to my point, though, about, like, it's a cultural issue, too, and we can talk about even a global cultural issue. But, yeah, academic culture recreates itself, yeah. and we can think about I mean, all cultures in some ways reproduce themselves, and mm-hmm. there's always kind of cultural inertia. There is change, but it's breaking through that inertia and the vested interests, right? Do we, you know, how do we distribute workloads? How do we consider evaluations for promotion? Mm-hmm. Like all of those things are concrete ways that we could think about change, but I think they, they're always going to come in baby steps. So we've talked a lot about, you know, how our disciplines kind of approach the idea of stress, right? Like whether it be material and the need for tension or in my case, really thinking about structure. So how would, for a rhetorician, am I saying that right? That's right. How how would you approach responding to stress? And is it possible for like grand rhetoric to accommodate stress? I don't necessarily largely go in for a sense of like grand rhetoric. But if you think about what's called epideictic rhetoric, which is the, it's really a rhetoric of praise and blame, but it, it's ceremonial in some ways. So mm-hmm. I think about something like after Sandy Hook shooting mm-hmm. or something when Obama gives yet another address on gun violence and guns in schools and all of these other kinds of things and becomes what people in my field call the consoler in chief and the then productive use of a mass address to try to talk to what people are likely feeling or the sort of hurt that they might be having. Um, If you think about one of the ones that I share in class all the time is Reagan's challenger eulogy. And of course, this predates all my students now. Some of them have never even heard of the Mm -hmm. challenger. So then we have to go back and talk about what happened and who was on board and why this was a big deal. And the fact that I was sitting in my fifth grade classroom Mm -hmm. and my teachers were hysterical and we all had to get sent home because nobody could function because Mm -hmm. there had been a teacher on board. And, And rather than giving the State of the Union, then Reagan gives this eulogy. And George W. Bush followed that template almost to the letter after 9-11 for the Mm -hmm. same reason, right? Be in the Oval Office, Mm -hmm. create a sense of stability Mm -hmm. and a sense of someone with a grasp on what's going on, kind of a father figure in that case, right? Mm -hmm. And it's super paternalistic in that case, Mm -hmm. but it is sometimes necessary for people to feel like at least someone Seems like they're in control of Mm -hmm. the situation, even if I'm not. So I can see it having the opposite effect. For example, now it seems like there's a lot of um, stress politically. And (laughs) one thing I was reading recently was that um, folks are not filing their taxes as as quickly this year as they have been in the past. Oh, really? And I wonder if um, just the stress of like politics and all the the national upheaval and 
and uh, really heated discussions that we've been having. I, I don't know. I can't compare it to. No, I think previous, that's true. But um, I think every time I, I think people are taking concerted breaks from social media and that kind of thing mm-hmm. because there's just a lot of rage and it's a lot of fatigue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's fatigue about outrage. Yeah. And you yeah. can't you can't be constantly outraged. I mean, this is one of those things that people talk about. Like, what are the things you can't be have you can't have the steady diet of rage. Yeah. Yeah. Or so, you will just not be able to function. Right, <laughs> which raises kind of an interesting to me counterpoint. Like at what point does stress just cause you to cut out, like cut and run? And mm-hmm. you know, is that a good while that may be a good personal response, is that a good social yeah. response? Right? Like how much do you, we still should we still be engaged um even when our minds are going crazy? Yeah. So another question to that. I, I guess I'm left wondering, like, what are my responsibilities to myself to relieve stress? And what are my responsibilities to my bigger uh, continuum or society to yeah. relieve stress? I think that's a, I think that's a question probably everyone is grappling with. I had conversations with people who were like, what, you know, post this election if they wanted to leave. And, <laughs> and I said something about being able to leave is a privilege. Mm-hmm. And That kind of mobility, well, I could go get a job anywhere or I could Mm -hmm. do what I do from anywhere. That's a a different kind of situation than having to stay and And fight it out. This is our family. Right. And, you know, so my attitude is you got to do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. But you also need to remember that these people are your people, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that if... If you have the benefit of being someone people listen to, yeah, then, you know. I do feel personally responsible, you know, that I was given privileges. Um, and so I, sh- I feel like I should use those privileges as a responsibility to take care of other people who didn't have mm-hmm. the privileges that I've got. And being aware of those things, I mean, that's a, that's a challenge in itself, but um, getting to that point where mm-hmm. I've got resources that I can use to help other people. That seems like the right thing to do. I mean, as I was thinking about this, one of, and as we think about caring for society and resources, I think sometimes we also underestimate the power of a thank you. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, loads of people do loads of things under severe duress or under crazy schedules or whatever and are never recognized to it. And I think our profession is especially bad. We're awful. At recognizing successes or recognizing (laughs) accomplishments or even, like, minor, minor accomplishments in the midst of a really, really crazy schedule or whatever. Mm. And I think just, like, recognizing them and saying thank you in some ways at a very personal level, starts to embrace that community. But thinking about what kinds of practices you could have, like just doing something, one thing a day, you know? I mean, a lot of people are kind of doing that that model, like a daily action thing, like make one phone call or say thank you to someone or whatever, something that does help your stress maybe and other people's, but doesn't also create more Mm -hmm. in that regard. Yeah, they say that relieving uh, or... um, they say that showing gratitude can actually relieve some heart trouble. I'm not sure how much truth there is to that, but um, I believe keeping that. a gratitude journal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so maybe communication and gratitude is part of the solution to this. All comes back structure. to you. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it always does really all come back to me. That's, that's actually the only reason that I do this podcast is <laughs> so that I have an opportunity to hear myself. I want to thank both um, Professor Shaw and Professor Hay for being with me today. And we hope you tune in next time. Thank you. Thank you. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. And that's all I have to say about that. I learned something today. We're all officially kicked out of school. See you around. Yeah, see you.